Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out. Hey everyone, Aaron Noonan here. Welcome again to the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Repco. My guest on this week's pod and indeed next week because it's a two-parter is former V8 Supercar privateer and team owner John Faulkner. Now there's so much to talk about with JF, we had to split it into two parts. There was no way we could cram it into one. Now we talked on this first part about a bunch of stuff. We talked about how he bought a one-way ticket to Australia when he was 16 and didn't tell his parents he was going from New Zealand. We talk about how he got into touring car racing, his first Bathurst 1000 start, about giving away car racing and going karting and then coming back to become a factory Toyota driver in their Corolla touring car program in the Group A days. And of course then, how he became one of the stars of the Calder Park Thunderdome in Oscar and NASCAR racing, super speedway, really big in Australia in the early to mid 90s and JF was right among it all. We also hit him up for our new segment, What's in Your Cupboard, a chat about what memorabilia he's kept from along the way from his racing career, courtesy of our friends at the Motorsport Trader. Now, we were supposed to do this one in person. I was supposed to be sitting on the Gold Coast face-to-face across the kitchen table with JF. Unfortunately, Victoria went into lockdown just as I was about to get on the plane a matter of days beforehand going up to Queensland. So instead, we're on the phone line, we're on the landline, but nevertheless, it all worked fine. The chat is the goal, the stories are the star. Doesn't matter about how we did it, we managed to do it in the end. So buckle up, here we go. Time to start part one of John Faulkner on the V8 Sleuth podcast, powered by Repco. Well, I would have liked to have been sitting with you, John Faulkner, right now. Unfortunately, we're on a phone line. It's the best I can do given COVID, and they won't let me out of the state to come and sit in the sunshine with you uh, up in Queensland. First of all, welcome to the V8 Sleuth podcast. Uh, I'm really sorry that... uh, our government has not let me come to see you. But anyway, it's good to have you. Uh, how are things in your world? Uh, yeah, all good. I mean, I, don't, I appreciate the fact that you're going to stay there. Did, <laughs> you know, we uh, we do struggle with some of the Victorians that have come up here and bring all their shit with them. But, oh, come on. You, know, you, you were one of them. You were one of them. You moved, what, 15 years ago? Mate, I can't get any closer to the water, so I'm breathing fresh air and staying out of supermarkets. And I'm at that age where apparently I'm vulnerable, so... What, 23? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I used to lie about that, didn't we? Uh, now, I do remember something about that. You did chisel your age Ingle style there for a while, didn't you? Yeah, I got rid of about four years. Um, I can't really remember the reason why it was something where I wanted to and uh, impress someone and it just it went on a document and then got transferred blindly by cams and all of a sudden I was you know, four years younger, so <laughs> it wasn't so bad. Ah, well, it, it could have been worse. It could have been four years <laughs> older. Not such a bad thing. Hey, uh, yeah, yeah, true. Exactly. Hey, tell me, um, as a young bloke growing up in New Zealand, what was the thing that hooked you onto cars and and racing? What was the what's the first thing that that hooked you in? Uh, well, New Zealand, you got your driver's license at fifteen, so. It was a no-brainer. Um, you know, we, were, we weren't pinching cars and borrowing mum and dad's cars and driving on gravel roads and where, whatever we could do. Didn't really have the television back then, but, you know, we 
we knew about motorsport. Um, I just couldn't see myself staying in New Zealand. You know, brother was about to marry someone in gumboots and, you know, my mates were like getting married at, you know, 17 and 18 and I was about to turn 17 and thought, got a motorbike, going to sell it, going to go to Aussie, met a bloke at a party, um, said he, you know, used to go to Bathurst and stuff like that and told me about Peter Brock and so, yeah, I just sold the motorbike and got a one-way ticket, didn't tell the folks and arrived in Melbourne in, what, January the 1st, 1969. Wow. So they they had no idea. You, you just went, oh, nah. I'm done. I'm gone. No. Nah. Uh, just said I was going over to meet a bloke that, you know, was going to look after me and um, show me around and, you know, it'd be a couple of weeks. And, yeah, it took about oh, six or seven years before I actually went back. <laughs> and did you come? They tried everything to get me back, but, yeah. you know, I was uh, almost an adult. And I, only problem was I couldn't re- technically drive over in Australia, but I did, you know, and I just constantly kept getting caught and, I looked like a paper boy driving a car, you know, at that age. And <laughs> it was just, you know, had a wall full of speeding tickets and noisy exhausts and failing to produce and failing to attend. And <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah, a bit of a bad fella at that, that age. So, JF, it was more a case of you just wanted to get out of New Zealand rather than you had the grand aspirational goal of becoming a racing driver. It was more just, I want to get out and then we'll see what happens after that. Yeah, didn't didn't know much about motorsport at all. As you know, television was like in you know it's in the Flintstone days. Then I think about all we had, or I dream a genie or something. That we just didn't get motorsport. Um, occasionally, I'd heard about Chris Amon. You know, he was sort of probably the only notable person that I, you know, heard of Jack Brabham. But um, yeah, we were riding motorbikes and driving cars fast on gravel roads and all thought we were pretty good, but really wasn't until I got to Australia that, um, and I didn't really carry that passion over here. I just started, you know, working in the automotive industry as much as I could and a couple of jobs here and there until I could get a car, and um, which ended up being a Holden Ute and full of rust and <laughs> we just started going to the motorsport events, you know, Oran Park, um, Amaru, Bathurst, just became avid followers of it, you know, and hanging over the fence watching Brock and Beachy and thought, wow, you know, love to do that one day and never thought ever possible. Never never had those big dreams like a lot of, a lot of guys do. I just actually how it started, a guy that I was living with bought an XU1, you know, 1971 or whatever it was that come out reasonably wealthy Italian dude and took us out to Calder. It was a car club meeting. It was Richard Davison there. It was the first time I'd met him. And uh, I had my first drive of a decent car and went, wound him off and very you know, quite a few others and thought, right, this is the career. So <laughs> it really started from there. Yeah. What was the first race car that you actually got your, your hands on that, you actually, that was yours? Um, well, I went shares in the old Kiwi Rup Anglia, which was a sports sedan back in the oh, late 60s, early 70s, had a mid-mounted hold, and then I paid like $200 for it, and had all these dreams of just putting a motor in it, that was the sales pitch, and then sat and looked at that for two years in a, in a mate's shed, and 
in Caulfield and yeah, never never went any further than you know. We just weren't earning the money then, you know. I think I was at like fifty dollars a week, and you know, doing as many mechanical jobs as I could of the night, and cleaning bloody, you know, commercial buildings of a night, and just just trying to survive. You know, wanted to buy a Cortina. That was my first car I actually bought as a road car GT Mark One, and um, sold the Anglia. Um, Built my first race car, which was um, when halves again in a, in a Capri uh, V6. I bought it off John Mann, a Victorian ex Mustang racer. Mm. Probably some of the fan base would remember him. He was a good guy, a car salesman. So it was unpainted and been burned out, but it was half restored. So I went halves in that. And um, yeah, just uh, was working at a shell service station in the Caulfield Race Course area and had a huge workshop and they were very kind and let me sort of set up, you know, JFR, I suppose, and in the corner and beave it away and built that car there. Am I right in remembering or reading somewhere along the line that the the link-up that you had with that came with Gary Dumbrell, Paul's dad, um, you raced at Bathurst and you did some touring car racing together. Did that start because he crashed into you one day out at Calder in, I guess, the late 70s or somewhere around there? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, in, in those days, I was, you know, I, I was driving all sorts of, like I was buying and selling cars and, you know, whatever was quick. I'd sort of run at club events, motor cars, hill climbs. But the Capri was nearing, you know, like it was half reason I had the Webers on it and, bit of a roll cage and some wheels and some mini lights, in fact, and they asked me to do a six-hour relay race for our local car club and turned out I was about the only car remaining on the track after six hours and, <laughs> and about the other car was happened to be this guy in a mini, which was very fast. And it turned out, we, you know, we're racing for the, for the win and he was all over me and obviously, you know, I had more power and he had better corners and... He ended up firing into my door like huge, and and we you know finished the race. I can't even remember, you know what club won, but I'm in the pits loading up, and I'm pissed off. I got you know cars all dented, and you know it was like a freebie. I'd worn the thing out, done a million laps because all the other cars had shit themselves. <laughs> and he walks up and he goes, "Oh, you know, I'm, you know puts his hand out, Gary Dumbrell." Um, I'd like to pay for that damage. I'm really sorry. I had a great race. Um, I said, oh, shit, you know, fantastic, you know. So he said, you know, here's my number, get in contact with me. And uh, I did. And then he said, what are your thoughts about running at Bathurst? He said, you know, I'd love to do it one day. And I said, mate, that's me. At that time, I think he was the manager of Wins, or his dad was, company was. And, um, yeah, started from there. So tell me about that. Was it 1980, the first Bathurst that you did in an Escort? Uh, no. Yeah, well, yeah, we, we tried to enter the Capri for two years running. We built it fully up to a touring car and we'd shared, you know, all the Amps car, Amaru, Endurance, you know, Sandown, Hang 10, 400s, all those sort of things. But Stibbard and the ARDC just refused. I mean, I think they hated Gary. Um He'd upset them with something, probably a million phone calls. 
and they just wouldn't accept the Capri. They were letting, you know, uh, Seaton's old man run one and RX-3s and all that crap. And so I had to go out and finance a, you know, a, a two-door Escort and flat out built that. That was 1980 was um, a bit of, that's where I met Ray Cutchie, you know, from the Alan Moffat days. And he steered me in all the right directions to build it quickly and uh, we got an entry accepted and, yeah, that was our first Bathurst together. It was um, all Brills Auto Care. He, he bought all the Brian Speed shops by then, and uh, needed. You know, we had Sellies and you know had the pit girls and a couple of crew and uh, some uniforms and you know a little bit of money, just enough money to you know build a car and get there. But you know, all the work was done entirely by me. He was a you know he's a guy that wore a suit every day, so it was no help. Made, made a combo. One guy does the car, the other guy helps bring the money to make it all happen. So it's been a few yeah, combos yeah. over I years. mean, that's how most of it starts. Yeah, you find someone with some money. Well, he found me, you know. And I was enthusiastic and, you know, I never said no. And even though I couldn't deliver half the shit that I promised, <laughs> I, I built the car and, look, it was as stock as a rock. It didn't even have a diff in it. And, you know, there was no close ratio gearbox. But we had a good engine, Cutchy Builders, you know. Something pretty flash, and it was um, yeah, it was good. What do you remember of that that first Bathurst? Because I guess that's only a matter of what years since you'd you'd been there as a fan with your you know your chin hanging over the fence. Um, just frightened, you know. Honestly, I just you know I'd done the hang ten like the sand downs, and I thought, man, that was pretty quick over the top, even in, in these things. And and at that stage, I think they're approaching. You know, I think we had like 180 or 90 horsepower or something, 800 kilo car. Bathurst just, it, it frankly scared me. It was, um, it was out of my league, really. A lot of, I hadn't done a lot of racing with super competitive drivers. So we had a class of, you know, seven or eight cars, mainly all escorts. And, you know, um, I think it was Peter Williamson who was just flogging everyone because it was up to two liter. And, um, but yeah, no, it was, it was, it was good. Gary was he was a good steerer, but a little little bit slower than me, um, a bit more conservative. But we just thought we'd plot around. Had a had a, had a you know um, pretty wide eyed about the whole thing. You know, all you got was lies from most of the people you asked. You know about what <laughs> gears and what what corners. <laughs> well, surely you weren't you know. shocked by that. Come on now. I wasn't really into making friends in those days, and, and I was a bit in awe of. You know your Brocks and your Bartlets and all those dudes. They were hard guys to, you know, get to know because we were class cars. And you know, unless you're running a front-running car, you weren't in that group. Um, the, the only thing they ever wanted off me was a cigarette. You know, that was about it. There was nothing else, nothing in the communication, nothing in drivers' briefings. It was just get in, get out. You know, don't get in the way. Yep. They'd come down and tell you off if you didn't move over quick enough. And in those days, moving over was the thing to do. Um, but I learned a lot. It was good. You know, I learned, learned it was all about preparation. Didn't have to be a great driver to, you know, to finish Bathurst. Mm. So at this stage, mate, what are you doing? Are you full-time on working on this race car, working the service station? Uh, what, what are you doing? Um, I'm just trying to make money. Um, pressure to buy a house, you know, start a family. Um, 
working long hours, uh, had had more probably had more clients than the people I was working for. They were so good to me, um, the goal of the family, and it was right opposite the corporate race course. So I get the odd tip off the jockeys and trainers, and which all went into the cash can, and and you know just try to develop the car, and then you know all of a sudden you know got. Got a Cologne engine, the same engine that you know your Rod Stevens and your your Bill Browns were running, and you know the cars that were winning. We needed that sort of gear, so we got the diff, got the right gearbox, and all of a sudden I'm front row Joe, you know, up under two liter at Cola, and you know it all started to work for us. Um, but no money, you know, Dumbra was unless he was getting a seat, there was no money, mm. so we only had endurance stuff. And my partner in it, uh, who I was working with, unfortunately, uh, died in a car testing accident. He worked for a local Ford dealer, and he was like my best mate and the one that helped me work all night on cars. And yeah, when he passed, it was um, I got a bit disillusioned with it. Parked it in the corner, put it up for sale, and bought a house. And um, went right up, got a house. So now I'll go go karting. I think I. I've been to a couple of local meetings and was impressed with them and so waddled into Drew Price Engineering and had one with a, you know, ordered one with a lot, <laughs> the best you could buy then, which was a DAP, you know, engine and wets and frame and, and the whole lot was about three grand. It was, it was awesome. Far cheaper than car that. racing. I couldn't spend enough, you know, it was just amazing. And, I, and by that stage, I'd moved into an Ampole petrol station, which had a good workshop and I was leasing that and that was just up the road from DPE and um, so yeah it was uh, that's how it started just disillusioned with the motorsport never thought I'd ever get a decent car to run there and anyway about a year later I got a phone call off the guy that bought my escort and said yeah he'd on sold it I uh, never got a start at Bathurst in it he'd bought the Colin Bond Masters and Homes Capri which was you know, really nicely built Sydney car. And they were fast. Asked me to run it at um, one of the Adelaide ATCC rounds. So, yeah, drove over there, jumped in that, and that was my first race car. That was something that was pretty special. You know, I thought, well, you know, this is what one should feel like. Mm. Um, got, gave me the bug again. That was, I think, 83, 1983. Um, that was just a one-off, though. But back to go-karts, loved it. Racing everywhere, country series. Didn't do many Australian titles. That bored me, you know, like three or 400 go-karters all in the pits for three days and, you know, you get one, you're punted and you're out, you know. So yeah. I didn't really, didn't really chase championships. It was just all about wins for me. And who was racing? Who was in that era of karting that our, our listeners might might know of now. Um, well, adults. There was uh, well, Drew Price was like, yeah, he, as he was known as God. He did one like Australian title six times. It was John Pizarro. Engels come along, but later he was a junior when I was running. Um, Howard Heath, you know, Hollier. Not really. Not many of them went on to motorsport in those days. They sort of stuck with their own. Their own. They're a bit like Speedway, you know. They stuck together. Um, the Price family, obviously. Um, David Price was running then, and but no one, um, no one that I later on went on to in, mm. in you know 
touring cars or supercars or Bathurst and stuff like that. Yeah. He got pissed off to England and sort of even got forgot about him. And you know, lo and behold, you know, I'm at Bathurst one day and you know I'm up over the top and I look in the in the rear vision mirror and there's bloody Ingalls in that GIO car and. <laughs> He gives me a, a belt in the rear because we had some bad blood at that time. And oh, really? Uh, from the oh, karting yeah, days? Or? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I just sent him down the road a couple of times and he did the same to me. And it was a bit of a team thing. He drove for Drew Price's opposition and, and I quite often drove mostly Drew's products. And then I was a bit of a mole. I switched to Swiss Hutless, another brand that Ritter was bringing in and he bought this card at the World Championships and basically bought it straight off the grid, tyres and all, lifted it up. As you do buy something, you know, that's just one. Took it back to Australia and rang me and said, JF, I got this this cart and, you know, it's one off and can you run it at the big title? So I said, yeah, yeah, I'm there, you know. So um, I put it on pole. Um, I think won the first race and then turned out that, you know, it ended up Drew, Engels, me and I think Pizarro for the for the win type deal. And uh, I wasn't on pole, I'd missed one heat, a chain had broke or something. So I remember getting the nod from I can't remember whether it was Drew, I think it was Drew or his his dad <laughs> said here's your big chance, JF <laughs> So I lined up Ingle and sent him down the road on the opening lap and uh, we won the team event. And, um, yeah, there was a huge argument. There was almost a fist fight. I had Buddy Ritter pulling us off and pushing and grabbing and holding. And, yeah, it was a pretty shitty deal. And then he pretty much went to Europe. So didn't have to deal with him. But um, eventually, you know, we all caught up. We're mates again and, he was in and out of drives, and um, yeah, no, good times. Yeah, good times. Uh, I always knew he'd go somewhere. He was such a good steer in carts. When he when he became an adult in carts, he was, you know, one track mind. You know, win at all costs, and that was my style as well. Mm. Oh well, you probably uh, even though you, you butted heads, you were of the same viewpoint and the same style and the same way of approach to it. So there's a there's a, a respect there between. Too hard. Yeah, like I don't know whether I'd call it respect. I begrudging his, respect. His, his driving style was so unique, um, and and you know, I quite often, you know, I admired watching him in other classes, and as well as your John Pizarro's, Drew Price was just polished and and you know, absolutely brilliant in a cart. Um, but you know, none of them were unbeatable. I could beat all of them on my day. Um, I was ruthless, you know. A couple of taps, and if you didn't move, you're out. You know, I just I had no tolerance for blocking. Um, I just was just, you know, in carting, you just, as soon as you got to someone, you had to pass them. That was it. Mm-hmm. There's nothing else you could do. Every lap in under a minute means every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Tick Attack. Supercars unforgettable. Uh, hey, another thing I forgot about that I wanted to, to quickly ask you about too. So your first, we, we'll we talk about Oscar, NASCAR, V8 supercar. So cars with V8 engines became a, a, a regular thing for you later in your career. Um, but your first 
Bathurst in a V8 wasn't in a supercar. It was actually in a Group C Commodore in the last year of Group C, that yellow um, Colin Campbell V8 Commodore. Yep. How did That was the old Alan Jones-Warren Cullen car, I think. How did... How did that come to be? So I guess the the Capri drive that you talked about in '83 sort of helped to lead you back, and the bugs there. You're doing karting. How does a, another crack at Bathurst in a Commodore pop up? Yeah, so that was that was '84. Um, walking through the pits at Sandown, you know, I'm, I'm carless. I'm, I'm I'm loving go karting, and I was getting a bit of a reputation. You know, I could. A lot of guys had, you know, used to go to Oakley and and, and Brooklyn and the Castrol at Oran Park and, you know, I was certainly in that elite bunch of interlight drivers that had a half a reputation and I was walking through the pits at Sandown and uh, Colin Campbell, who used to race a Capri, the Ranger truck rental car, said, hey, JF, you know, what are you, what are you doing? What are your plans? And I said, look, nothing, mate. I can't afford motorsport, can't afford a built car. He said, oh, I've got a group of guys that have bought this car. They own a wrecking yard and a hotel, and they've got enough money to to get this car. We've got the car. Um, how how would you like to come and, you know, have a run at Bathurst? And I think they more needed my, uh, you know, licensed acceptance um, because Bathurst was like, you know, it was Ivan Stibbard, ARDC, you know, you got an invitation or you didn't go, you know, you, you could enter, but it didn't necessarily mean you were going to get an entry. Mm. So um, they put my name on the on the list and, um, yeah, we got accepted. Um, went and had a look at the car, go over a couple of nights, did a few things that, I, you know, knew needed to be done to it, knew its history. Um, it looked like it was pretty well built and, what I didn't realise is it didn't have an engine, it had a dog and, and you know, we got the sand down in it as a, as a lead up to Bathurst then and it was just slow, you know, you, brakes and coring, we were both okay and just up every straight, we were just getting past one either side and got to Bathurst and, you know, a couple of seconds of lap of sand down turned into like six and seven seconds at Bathurst. It was embarrassing. So... um yeah, I was pretty disappointed about the whole deal, and um, but everyone on the team was great. Some good guys working on it, and you know there was nothing we can do. We had no spares, no spare engine, and in the end, you know the the sponsors were going, well, you know why? And I dragged a lap out of it just to get you know into qualifying, which was still six seconds off. Um, you know, my mate Steve Harrington, who was running, I think. SDP car or one of those brands um, he was giving me advice and I said look I'm just down on speed I think I'm good everywhere else and so uh, the sponsors all you know over dinner that night we, we you know um, this was on I think on a Thursday or Friday we were nowhere and they come up with an idea, well, how about we lease you an engine? Um, we'll go and talk to um, HR or HDT or Larry Perkins, whoever was running it then. So they did that, and um, Larry came up, looked at the car and said, yep, 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 it'll go straight in. And so we leased this this engine. You know, it was like we'd already qualified, so it was like uh, would have been Saturday we were bolting the thing in. 
And then Larry come up in the wide overalls and leaned over and screwed a couple of jets into the Webbers and had a pair of shocks under his arm because I said the thing not only was it dangerous, it was like a pogo stick, you know, it was just you'd go through the dip and he was still bouncing at McPhillamy Park. And <laughs> so a couple of Bilsteins went in the front. We give it a rough toe, um, got the thing fired up. I got out for the warm-up and my third lap, I think, I did a 19, which was like the sixth fastest Commodore. So six seconds at least. <laughs> the straights get a bit shorter when you get a bit more grunt. Oh, was, I, I thought... And the handling was just, it transformed the whole car. It made it really good to drive. So um, other than we broke a Watts linkage bolt, um, car was fine. You know, we pressed on with that and it just got too dangerous to drive. We put a socket and a bolt and something, something else that didn't fit and the wheel, the only thing holding the wheels in with the guards and Ugh. Colin, the, co- the, uh, the other driver, just refused to drive it. So we... I'd done the maximum laps. We had to park it. You know, mm. I can't even remember whether we finished. It was scary. I know that. That's the bit that stands out. Not the result. It's just that it was scary and it was all over. Well, so. yeah, and the, and the fact that there were engines out there and suspension and guys that knew what they were doing. It was like driving the Bond Master car. It was brilliant to drive. It just did everything right. And so straight after Bathurst, it was like the Colden meeting and. As Colin was the one who put the deal together and the lead driver, I felt really sorry that they asked me to drive at a colder, you know, in a sprint race. Which and was the Australian Grand Prix support race at the end of that yeah, year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've, I've lined up there and, of course, no money again. Larry's want wants his engine back, like, the following week. He said, all right, you, I'll let you do colder because you didn't do many kilometres at Bathurst. And that you know, all that typical Larry deal. Um and we kept the shocks, and so yeah, I, I dropped it on the grid there, and, and found myself, you know, looking to drive around the outside of Harvey in the opening laps and pushing for the the top five. You know, I thought, wow, this is this is what I want to do. Mm. You know, that in those days it was glow weave and it was a short track and a bit of biff and barge, but um, yeah, we just you know. I still had the same tyres on that had done, I think, a double stint at Bathurst. And, you know, they basically wound all of them off and four or five laps and I was a couple of seconds back from the bunch and next where I stayed. Yeah. Couldn't yeah. do much with it. And I guess then that, mate, that leads to that point of great opportunity, got to do Sandown, got to do Bathurst, but then what? We're back to kind uh, of where we started or did the Toyota thing start to bubble from there? What really started it was a test drive of the roadways, Harrington stuff. They invited me out. Garth Wigston, I think, was going to retire, which I think he said every year. And and Stevie Joe was – I was racing carts at his cart shop, you know, flying in and out of Tassie. And in those days, you could get – you could win money and go karts. It was on TV, you know. It was a, quite a good sport. And um, I think – I don't think it was Les Small, but it was another guy running roadways at the time. So I went out to Colder and I did did a test session there with um, them and well never got the drive. Apparently I was too quick, so <laughs> a few noses out of joint. Never got the call up. We remained mates um, and I just you know went on the merry way and back to karting again. And uh, there's about eighty five, I think Tony Niavani, uh, who's 
daughter raced carts and, you know, was a well-credentialed driver in himself. I'd heard about his career in, in uh, HDT and driving lots of different cars and Bathurst. And he approached me at the carts and said, look, um, there's an opportunity to test a works Corolla, the Toyota Team Australia at Winton. Are you interested? And I said, oh, you know, shit, yeah, that's me. And it was a fairly big meeting we were at at Oakley and what I didn't know, he had also asked Drew and, you know, maybe a couple of others. I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure. I didn't ask too many questions. I said, yep, love to, you know, Winton test day, fantastic. And then proceeded to have the worst day in carts in front of him. Like oh. I punted everybody. I punted Drew off. I think I, oh, you no. know, I, it was just shocking. And never got the call up. Never, never even got to <laughs> <laughs> turn up at Winton with your helmet. Nothing. Um, I don't know what I did wrong. I have no idea. I had heaps of pace, and you know, but I was a I was a guy that entered three classes at every meeting, and I just couldn't get enough racing. So I'd be bolting lead on and lead off, and two carts. And anyway, it didn't happen. I didn't bother asking. I just pressed on, and um, then I got a phone call off Ray Kutchie. Um, said, "Hey, I've got the factory car. They've asked me to." prep it and run it at Sandown and Bathurst, um, I'd like you to come and drive with me. And my only relationship with Ray was I'd have lunch down there three days a week. I'd drive from Caulfield to Moorabbin, his shop, it's not far from Larry's, and I'd either buy him lunch or um, we'd just chat about, you know, the Moffat days. And, and you know, I learned so much off him how to use his lathe and set-ups and used to help him as much as I could over that hour over lunch. I was always late back to work. And, <laughs> yeah, so he just – he had the car down there and um, all the help and components we needed. And I didn't have any really – any hand in it whatsoever. He was – Ray was Ray. Ray did everything himself and everything was immaculate. It was just, you know, I just knew we were going to have a really, really good, strong car. And it was the first of the – a86 hatchback. So it was the one that Smithy had run in 84, pretty much on his own against, you know, Bob Holden and a few others. But they'd got a brand new car and um, Drew was the one that went to the test. Um, the prick never told me that he did. <laughs> <laughs> I found out the hard way and I was really pissed off because Drew had also had a camp license and had raced escorts and minis and stuff. He was a quite conservative guy and we were good mates and, you know, I know it must have been hard for him to, you know, not tell me about it. And Anyway, we, it all turned out good in the end and uh, me and Ray fronted at Sandown and, yeah, we were part of the team, you know. We were we had the full crew and everyone had a uniform. We all had a shiny new driving suit and it was my first real opportunity to meet John Smith. Um, who I'd seen in open wheelers and stuff like that. And he was super competitive and it was all about John Smith, the whole team, but Drew was just sort of there to, you know, fill in like I was, apparently. But, yeah, we um, we had a good run and the car went great. We won. Um, I think their car fell over and that was our first uh, win together, me and Ray, so... Got the big trophy and look forward to heading to Bathurst. So it was 
just the start of our of my TTA program. We, I wasn't an official driver then. It was just you know here I was um, entered under TTA, but wasn't getting paid for it. Um, that came later. So uh, yeah, yeah. Look I, forward to it. It became such a a big part of that Group A um, touring car era, JF, the, the TTA cars, yourself, Mike Quinn's there for a bit, Smithy, of course, Drew, um, and then they gave other drivers opportunities later on down the track, Brooke Tatnell, all sorts of people. But, uh, I mean, Toyota stuck up. I mean, they're, they're involved in the game now with the, the 86 series, which is great. Um, being a class competitor, I mean, occasionally there'd be a, a rival pop-up. The Nissan Gazelle is one of the, the cars that springs to mind, but it was generally class Corolla. Uh, was it fun having your own domain battling one another or did you get to the point where uh, it's good? But, I mean, you were there for, what, four, five years? I think that TTA program, you were part of that. Two wins at, at Bathurst in 86 and 88. But after a while, I guess it gets a bit frustrating because you kind of see these guys lapping you every... 10 laps going, I want to be in one of them. This is nice. I'm getting paid to do this, but I kind of want to have a go in one of those. Yeah, yeah, you did, right. All of that, that's, um, it was mind games. It got to the point, well, I won't go into that just yet, but it was, it was very much, the team was pretty much run by Smithy and he was a Sydney Toyota dealer, family dealership. The, the, the Toyota marketing department was all in Sydney. They all wanted it in Sydney but it was based in Port Melbourne. And Niavani was doing like uh, paint identification or something and someone said, hey, you know, who knows anything about motor racing? Oh, Niavani. So like, he was he was our manager and he had a good fit. So he got a good group of guys together. The workshop, race shop was immaculate. Um, the cars pretty much came from... TRD or, or, or Tom's in, in Japan, you just took the ribbon off, put the petrol in and away you went. We didn't have to do much at all. You know, we took out the 1,200-pound springs and put in 600 pounds so we could use the curbs and, and we drove them. But when you were racing against other Corollas, they were brilliant. They had like 200 horsepower, 800 kilos. I mean, you, you know, crash box, um, fast, well put together. You couldn't break them. Um, they revved to, you know, 8,800, 9,000 in qualifying. Um, engines were bulletproof, but you were always in your mirrors with the other cars. It was class cars. Um, most of the BMs were way quicker. Some of the older ones, we were faster then. But in those days, we were racing against Sierras and, and you know, bloody Volvos and all sorts of other crap. And the, the Sierras had worn the tyres off, and after you know ten or fifteen laps, you were almost at their pace. Like they were in your way under brakes around the mid corners. They had no no corner speed, but then they'd blaze off down the straight. So in the end, we were just chasing back running Sierras, BMs, you know, slow Commodores, guys that you know stumbled over a few. Few grand and bought a you know uh, an ex Group C car or something and but places like Amaru where we were were super competitive and whenever it rained we were right there. I remember being I think third in, in one of the sessions at the World Touring Car Championship. Um, 
in the wet, you know, around Thunderdome, mm. me and Drew, in the front-wheel drive. Like, it was just <laughs> amazingly far. And another time, I was fixed on the grid at Amaru alongside in front of Wynn Percy in the um, in the Holden Racing Team car in the rain. And I remember at the media, he said, gee, I used to drive those things, but I didn't think they were that quick, you know. <laughs> so we had... Crompton gave us a rap at Bathurst. You know, no one could pass us from Skyline down to Forest Elbow. We were, that was our, you know, you could just drive them on the limit, but nothing up up or down the hill. We were just, you know, mm. fixed speed mm. and that was it. Um, our only real competition came when the British car came out. The Hodges has one that won everything in Europe. It actually won the, I think, the British Touring Car Championship by winning its class every round It beat you know, Sierras and Rovers, and they came out well-credentialed with a flat-out cheater at Bathurst, and we got all excited, and and they were very fast. But um, I think um, we managed to beat them in the end, but I'm not sure. Well, I, I think can't that, really remember. That, that was the World Championship year, and that's the year it rained, and the two, probably the, the worst race outcome for TTA, both the cars leading the class smacked the fence at the top of the hill and were out in, in the rain. Um, yeah. And Bob yeah. Holden ended up wandering along. <laughs> it was a, I think he was about eight laps behind you at the time. He ended up winning the yeah. class with Gary Wilmington in his car. So, yeah, um, that's it. That was, a, that was 87 when were, the, were you uh, in one of the those Snitzer cars? cars. Were you in no, one I, those... just, look, I just got out of the car. Smithy had just got out of the car and, and two pit stops in a row and – and I was just looking at the TV and saw it all happen. Um, you know, the rivers weren't there when I got out, and and Drew and um, Drew and Quinny, I think it was Quinny in my car. No, who was it? Can't even remember. Yeah, I think it might have been. I think it was. Might have been. Yeah. yeah. It destroyed, and like there wasn't that much damage. But then you know, half a dozen other cars came round and slammed into them, and. It was the end of it. I think mine ended up in the Bathurst Museum for years. And, still there. And, it is um, still there. Yeah. Yep. And the others, you know, uh, we were offered the cars when Toyota finally quit for a dollar, providing we raced them. Smithy took the Supra to Sydney. Me and Drew were offered a car each, and but we had, but they wanted us to run them, you know, and, and we knew that, you know, an engine was 20 grand and we weren't spending that sort of money. And to be honest, we were looking for excuses not to even run them at like Amaru. We'd like we were racing nearly every second weekend. If we weren't doing the Amscar series, we were doing the Australian Touring Car series. We were doing ride days, all the dealerships all around the country. That was fun. Good meeting all those people. We were on. Um, I think it was about a thousand bucks a win. Got a bit of Dunlop prize money, company car. You know, like in those days, you were. We were very well. There was very few people paid to to drive. Mm. Um, we always, you know, paid to perform prior to that. So as much as it was income producing, and I mean, there was lots of envious guys that would love to have taken our spot, but it did get a bit boring in the end. We were racing basically against ourselves. Um, Bob had a few rented drivers, but we just. We had always had new tyres. We never rolled out with anything shit. It was always brand new and fast and, mm. you know, just good. Australian Muscle Car Magazine is one of the most respected voices in motoring media. 
There's been over 140 issues and thousands of stories published in the last 22 years, from the amazing muscle car machines of the past to the present and the stars that steered and built them. AMC has something for everyone. Delve into the heritage of homegrown high performance now at musclecarmag.com.au. Along the way there, mate, the competition was pretty high internally because you guys were the were the, the pace-setting cars of, of the time in that under-two-litre class era. But uh, tell me about the oh, – actually, one, one of the ones I wanted to cover off with you was in 88, you and Drew won your two-litre, won the small car class, and you finished ninth overall at Bathurst or 10th. It was, it was at the tail of the top 10, which didn't happen very often. If you had a good run, you were kind of in the mid-teens or the – the late teens overall, but do you remember that one? Because that's a stunning. No one will ever do anything like that ever again to finish in the top ten in a. I mean, we don't have classes anymore, which is a whole other story. But that's just about got to be the standout result from that period, surely. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was. It was a, a good thing. But how that happened, um, the front wheel drive car, the the um, you know the the hatches, they were. You know, like pigs, the understeer and torque steer, and like they went like rocket ships, and they were bulletproof, reliable, but they were just difficult to drive. And the rear wheel drive that Smithy was running um, would, you know, he'd be way ahead at the end of most sprint races. And then the new front wheel drives came came in the ninety two, and they were they were pretty, they were damn fast and and almost comparable to the rear wheel drive. But in 88, Niavani said, look, I think uh, Smithy had ran off and got a Sierra drive with Johnson and Drew was being looked at with Seaton on, on some opportunities and Niavani said, look, you and John together, uh, it was our first time really, um, you know, we'll, we'll get a hot rod engine, we'll do the best we can. I think we took it to Les Small and tried to tweak it up a bit and had the latest Dunlop tyres and you know the thing was just fully fruited up and they upped the rev limit for us and he said just we want you to drive it flat out you know to see what you can do so we did all the right pit stops we we just you know every lap was almost a qualifier both of us had equal pace um, qualifying Drew was such a layback dude like you know Niavani go right Qualifying's up. Who's qualifying? Drew go up. Oh, you know, I, I don't care. Do you want to? I said, yeah. oh, no, you can do it. You know, like it just didn't matter. We were real. We were real teammates. It was really, really good. And we pushed and flogged and banged and and ended up. You know, I think we were top ten. And then you know, the, I think the Sierras or something was scrubbed. And then we went to ninth. And then someone else got thrown out. I might have been and officially ended up eighth. Um, but it was a lot of laps and a great result, and you know, Toyota were ecstatic then. But they didn't really promote it that well because it was rear wheel drive and you couldn't buy it. And they were really pushing the front wheel drives, which I then went on to. Drew moved on to other things, and Smithy went in other directions, and they left the front wheel drives pretty much to me. Then I had it on my own for a couple of years, and so they bought that. You know, uh, where you said, um, yeah, Speedway guy, search for a crash. That's, that was the <laughs> That's what they called it. Is that what you called it internally? Well, yeah. I, we I think it was, search, it, was, it was search for a star, I think it was. 
technically. That's official, it. Yeah, official. yeah, I remember we were given a list at a, brief, at a debrief, and I went, "What? What? You know?" And all these names, and I thought, "They're going to bin this thing." I mean, they're hard to drive, you know, crash box and no power steer and heavy brakes, and you know, you only you only got to touch a curb and you'd two wheel the thing, you'd bicycle it for the next fifty meters. They were dangerous. Um, hard to drive, you know, right up at the very end of the rev limit. And if you if you weren't in that seven five to eight eight, it was a pig, no talk. And we had like Kerry Sawyer, I remember her, this uh, Oscar. Yeah, yeah, Brooke um, had, a, had a run, I remember. Um, but yeah, speedway guy, yeah, yeah. yeah. Michael Dowson, um, the, the 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 motorcycle racer who ended up driving oh, yeah, at he, Bathurst yeah, with he was Neil brilliant. Bates. Yeah, he was he fast. Was Bates was yeah, he was fast. Um, we had another dude in in uh, Perth, um, like a, just a club racer dude. The Fogs, Fogs, or, or whatever his name was. Uh, Fogliani, uh, Anthony Fogliani, That's him. was. Yeah, yeah. No, he was great. Um, look, they were all good. Limited practice. I was straight in at the deep end. And, oh, we had bloody Bondy and you know, Longhurst coming up, shaking fists at us. You know, why well, you stick these wankers in the cars? You know, <laughs> everyone was getting in the way and, yeah, you know, they just didn't have any motor racing experience, and here they were, you know, in a full field of ATCC cars, guys that were earning a living out of it. And I was meant to coach them. Um, yeah, it was hard, but it was it was a good program. It got a lot of recognition for them, um, and in the end, everyone gave us a fair run with it. Um, yeah, no, good good effort. No real major damage. I sent Dowson down the road. He had <laughs> like he was he was probably the fastest. Him and Bates are pretty pretty good. Well, I think they ended and, up uh, um, driving together at Bathurst and won the. They did. The class yeah, we year, we paired them. Yeah, we paired them, and um, they gave me uh, Peter McKay, McKay and um, you know they uh, they you know we had a fan bill go, but they smoked us and won their class. So it was good, but. So um, at this time, JF, was were you working in other? Did was the Toyota thing a full time job and financial, or was it a case of you still had a day job and this was kind of the nice on the side weekend thing? Um, I had the, I had the petrol station with a a three bay shop and chatty there in Pole and, and on the freeway and look my. Toyota customers, um, I was doing, you know, um, a lot of client fleet work and had a heap of guys with Supras, Corollas, Sleekers, big following of guys that wanted them tuned up and, you know, just me, a bit of advice and, and um, you know, we used to have the front wheel drive parked out the front because no one used that anymore and occasionally I'd give them a lap <laughs> I lap down the freeway and the full group A thing. <laughs> what? The ones I really knew, you know, like decent enthusiasts. I hope the constabulary didn't see any of this. <laughs> it was uh, it was pretty special, I tell you. It was really good, and um, had a good following with him. And and yeah, I was earning some good coin out of that. But I was my aim was you know I could the writing was on the wall that it was going to finish in the end of ninety early ninety one. Um, Japan had withdrawn their budget because at the time uh, Japan was paying for pretty much pretty much all of it. Toyota Australia didn't put a lot of money into it whatsoever, more so the marketing side of it. 
and I I started a shop um, down in Oakley, which was well actually rented out a Drew Price's shop, and I was looking at doing um, you know Oscar NASCAR. So I had my last race at Sandown with in a Bob Holden Corolla when Toyota Toyota shut the door within like a week. Wow. You know, that was just it was just bang slam. Um, the Sydney guys came up in a truck and raped the joint. Like there was motors going out the back door and cars and Smithy's loading, pushing everything you can into a truck. Bob Holden's there. There's just a whole lot of magpies and a whole lot of gear on the floor. And it was, as I said, me and Drew were offered a car each, but you know, what were we going to do with them? Mm-hmm. You know, we weren't allowed to sell them. We had, we had to race them. And to be honest, we were just a bit, bit over it. I wish now in hindsight I had it. Um, knowing what they're worth now, <laughs> Smithy's still got the Supra. He does, um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I caught up with him at the fifty-year reunion and had a good old chat. But yeah, he um, he still has that. Um, I did get to drive that once when he didn't turn up at Tassie, and that was uh, that was a very fast car, just a you know a big pig to drive, just but way too a heavy, lot though. of power, a lot, a, oh, a lot yeah. of power, but a lot of weight too. Yeah, huge, huge. So that was my first drive of, of that in Tassie, pre-qualifying, and and I knew what he was up against, you know, extremely fast, but just too heavy and too hard on the brakes. And, you know, five laps in, you'd worn all the you know, the tyres off it and the brakes were had it, and, you know, you were dialing the boost down. And, yeah, I, I, knew, I knew what he was up against, and, of course, when he entered for Bathurst, you know, I knew half those dudes weren't even going to get a suit, you know, get a get a get a lap. Mm. It just wasn't reliable either. Mm. So it was funny when we first got it. It it came in a container from um, from Europe, not Japan, and it was uh, it was meant to be a shiny new car, and we rolled it out. Had all the, you know the top brass, the Toyota there in the suits and. Of course, they got it up on jack stands and we're giving it a run and a bit of a rev and one of our engineers is in it and he's got his foot on the brake and he's boosting the thing up and boosting it up and everyone's getting more and more excited and all of a sudden, the front left guard blew completely off the car. (laughs) It exploded. Um, They hadn't... um, They took the breather up to a five-litre can under the front guard, which was its overflow, and hadn't drilled a relief hole in it. It pumped up like a balloon till it it blew the guard off. And, uh, yeah, that didn't go down too well with the hierarchy. And and, uh, it was a car we had to have. They didn't want to run it, but we we just had to run it. They were selling Supras, and that was about it. So that was our last hurrah, really, and uh, they shut the door and, yeah, we all moved on. Yeah, and the next chapter went oval track racing. But before we cover that off, we've got a little segment that we like to call What's in Your Cupboard? And it's with thanks to our mates at the themotorsporttrader.com. They're the, uh, they're the place online that you should head to um, to keep motorsport memories alive. They've got an amazing range of memorabilia. There's panels, there's wheels, there's all sorts of stuff from all sorts of cars over the years. Uh, last time I checked... They had a couple of your old JFR supercar bonnets, including the 
American Diner Pack uh, liveried bonnet from about 2001. So if you're in your memorabilia, go to themotorsporttrader.com. But, JF, what's in your cupboard? What have you kept from over the years? Did you keep your Toyota suits or have you kept helmets? Have you kept bits from cars? What have you kept from over the journey of, of racing? I, I did have a lot, but because we were in a, a little a townhouse on the water up here, we I don't have the storage. And it was only just a, oh, probably three or four weeks ago I put a post up on, uh, I think it was on Shitbook. I was, thro- I was actually at the tip throwing out three or four helmets. Oh. <laughs> I got all these guys, you know, messaging, private messaging me, oh, you know, I'll buy them, I'll, I'll buy this and I'll buy that. Mate, I got a, I got a, I got a wheel nut off a Group A. I had a wheel off a Toyota. I got my original Toyota helmet with radio, a whole lot of old helmets. Um, I, was, I wasn't a helmet guy, you know. I, I opened face so I could still smoke with them, you know. Like, it was just, I never really kept, I've, I've got a few suits and shirts and shit like that that Allison's. You know, vacuum bag, and then the dog ate all the zips off them, and <laughs> you know, like it's just—I'm not really into it, to be honest. I—I I, I got a massive amount of photos and professional stuff. Um, there's no shrine in our house. So I've got a couple of model cars, um, a few old trophies, and nothing really. I'm a garage full of helmets, and yeah, just odd knickknacks, you know. That's nothing, all right. nothing wrong with that. Nothing that I'd that'd be worth any money. Although I did find some HRT stuff with Beth, and you know, I I posted that up, and that went straight away. So that was I found an old couple of remember the old carbon briefcases. I still found that the sensitive yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. Everyone used to walk around with a briefcase in those days. And <laughs> found three of them with Seiko digital watches, and and lap and super licenses, and a whole lot of stuff. Cool. That we never really needed, but yeah, I've still got a lot of stickers, you know. Yeah, yeah cool, junk. cool. Oh, it's from part of the journey, part of the journey. Um, yeah, but you know, when I'm gone, it'll be on the nature strip, mate. It's, uh, you know, <laughs> there'll be people driving around the Gold Coast keeping an eye just to <laughs> know what might end up uh, on the, out the front of JF's house. Uh, we, we you touched on it before, obviously, the, the TTA era ended at the end of 1990, so it was a great stint there, but obviously, it had. It had run its course, and in the meantime, in the late 80s, the, the Thunderdome got up and rolling. Bob Jane sunk a lot of money um, out at Calder Park to get that uh, tri-oval put together. NASCAR fired up. Oscar, the local version with Commodores and Falcons, got rolling. And the fields of Oscar particularly grew very quickly. Um, was the Were you kind of, at the end of the Toyota era, going, I'm, I'm out of racing again, I haven't got a thing, or you'd already identified that that Oscar thing, that's that's where I want to go. The prize money's good. It's on telly. I can get a car cheap. That's my next thing. Had you already identified that as your, as your next step? Yeah, you're pretty much spot on, Aaron. I, I, Harrington was, it was you know, great mates. We, we did everything. He lived at my joint when he came back from Europe, and he was – you know, he, he had a car that the Les Small and them had built and he was, you know, sort of half running there with a sponsored NASCAR as well. And I I was still on the fringes of Toyota. We'd done a 24-hour 
a run at the Thunderdome, you know, uh, to, do, to break the world record, which we did. With road car. So we had like Smith A road car thing, though. Not a race yeah, car. Road car, car. Yeah, road yeah. car thing. So yeah. we just went around, 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 around. So I felt like really intimate with the Thunderdome. Like I knew every bump and crevice on it after 24 hours of running there. And we broke all these records and I thought, gee, you know, uh, another friend of mine with a workshop up the road, Stafford McLaughlin, he was building a car and he asked for a bit of help and, so I sort of hung around with him a bit. Steve was pretty well organised with Les Small and didn't really need me. And and I had a drive of Stafford's car and I was like way quicker than, than him and a few others. And and then Stevie said to me, oh, look, we've, you know, I've got this new car. They want me to run a VN. Do you want to run my old VL? You know, I'm like, we'll do a cheap lease deal. Um it's good prize money, you know. And I said, yeah, look, that's me, you know. So um, straight in at the deep end, um, the car was there, a couple of leaders, guys, Ricky Rush and another dude, um, yeah, just as a bit of a crew, motley crew sort of thing, uh, no new tyres, go and have a run, you know. And I was, I think I was like fourth fastest, you know, first run out thought, shit, this is pretty easy, and I wasn't really pushing it. And um, I was actually a bit quicker than Steve in the VN. And So anyway, we get into qualifying, and, yeah, it, all, it was all good. I think I qualified in the top four or five and start the race, and I didn't realise that they all ran around and, you know, played with each other until 10 laps to go, and then there was a race, you know, I... I really, I'd seen Days of Thunder and <laughs> come out of that with a tear in my eye and thought, you know. Pre- prerequisite uh, for any super speedway driver. Yeah, yeah. Look, it, it honestly, it, it got me motivated to to want to do that. And I thought, but the, the biggest motivating factor was the prize money. Mm. It was something like 25 grand for a win. And, and I that's, thought, a well, ra- that's a race win, not a championship win. Yeah, that was every time yeah, no, you no, out. Was just, yeah. yeah, turn up and, and, and run and... So here I am in a car that, um, you know, the engine felt really good, had some pretty cluey guys on it, you know, turn here, turn there, as they say, and it turned it into a, a jet for the race. And I put an in-car camera in it that I had lying around from the old days, and we started the race, and it just came to me. Within four or five laps, I was challenging Brad for the lead. And I'm thinking, this is just too easy, you know. Like, there was no finger and there was no waving me by and we were close and, you know, we were a touch here and a touch there and all grouped and I thought, oh, no, bugger it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the lead. So I just, you know, fired into the lead, led it for a little bit, you know, realised quickly that I think they were all playing with me a little bit, you know, they were a conservative pace, but, uh, you know, they weren't really pushing too hard, and I was. I was off. <laughs> My thing was so loose, I was oversteering it in nearly every lap from lap one, but I had never told anyone. I just thought that's what they did, <laughs> and eventually it just I, it just caught me out. I had my own crash, looped it in front of the, the whole field, um, went up, whacked the wall, and poor old... Um, uh, Bruce Williams in the Bendix car 
slammed straight into the that side of me. Big hit. Yeah, huge. And I saw it coming. Like I was, because when I spun, the whole thing filled up with smoke, and um, you know you can't see what what's happening or where you are. And the banking was twenty three degrees, and you couldn't even get out of the car. You know, and and there were cars. Well, he just slammed into me, and he had a you know, huge crash. It was all totally all my fault. Um, that's just what happened. That was at the end of that car and probably the end of Bruce's. And I went to get out of the car and I remember nearly falling, rolling down the track. Bruce slid down on his bum, I think, from memory. Um, you know, but he coolant and oil everywhere and a yeah, huge crash. That was the end of it. it and I knew, what was, I knew what was coming and that was, um, you know, I was going to have to buy the car. Yeah. So. Yeah, you, you bend it, you pay for it. Yeah. Mm. Well, that was the end of that race. It was the start of your your super speedway era. Not just Oscar racing, but you did you did NASCAR as well. Sometimes you did both for a, a period there. What was your? Yeah. Uh, we talked about the prize money because that's one of the the elements that made it so strong because it was so appealing. But the coverage when you started early nineties was on Channel Seven. Mike Raymond was obviously a huge. Supporter not just of touring cars, but he was a big believer in Bob Jane and American style racing and, and the Thunderdome. And and then after a couple of years, the the TV swapped to SBS. And although there was solid amount of coverage and it was it was well presented, it wasn't on a commercial network. And that's probably where the the, the Oscar NASCAR thing started to unravel a bit. But just tell us a bit more, mate, about driving around the Thunderdome. When you've, I mean, you'd already done the World Touring Car Race there, so you had a little bit of an idea in a Corolla what it was like. But for those listening, the concept of going to a bank track like that is completely different from circuit racing. What was your, what's your, how can you remember it? What was your impression? Was it imposing? Uh, what was your take on the whole concept of going round and round on a, on a big bank? Yeah. Oh, amazing. I, th- the first thing I did, I remember I met up with Marshall Brewer, who I knew from, you know, doing hill climbs in the old days, and he said, come with me, you know. So I went and sat in one of his passenger cars, and we just slowly drove around the track, and then he stopped in turn one on the banking. So as we're rolling, you, you get the indication of, you know, you're leaning into the corner. And then he stopped the car, and I couldn't believe it. I nearly fell into his lap from the passenger seat. It was just the banking is 23 degrees. It's just, and when you stop a car, that's when you realize, man, you know, like if you were in a road car, you'd think you're about to roll over. Um, he said, right, it's all centrifugal. And he said, you, we can go around this, and you're going to average about 200 kilometers an hour, in a, even in an Oscar every lap, you're never below about 200 and you're 220 or 230 on the straights. He said it's it's all centrifugal, so therefore it's like spinning around a teacup, you know, and if you flick out, you're going to, you can't save it. You're wasting your time. You're going to hit something. You're going to hit the wall or, or 20 other blokes are going to crash into you. So he gave me a really scary insight into what could happen um, and then I went out and did exactly that. You know, I just you know, made a complete cock of it, and um, and it, it, it honestly set me back a long way. I, I had to take that car, and you know, 
I actually rented a small spot at the back of Perkins's workshop with Harrington, and I think it was Peter Behag there, and there was um, you know uh, Jeff Bretch and John Stevens. They were all Larry had wound down. There's all Brock shit there, Sierras and cans and mobile uh, mobile oil, and you know everyone was low key, but we were flat out building a new car to replace what I'd you know crashed. Um, but I was constantly going out there midweek. I was trying to get as many laps in as many cars as I could, even road stuff, just to try and get a get that scared, scary feeling out of my system. I I didn't think I was going to come to grips with it. A lot of talks with Stevie Joe on on um, you know he was very successful there and just said, look, you'll you'll get a groove. You'll find eventually you'll find. You know the right line drafting, all that sort of stuff. Um, but the biggest thing he taught me, and he was the one that told me to do it. He said, "He said, right, he, we went out there on a couple of test days, and he said, just stay off the brake pedal, don't touch the brake pedal. He said, your, your lap times will be just about as fast. He said, but you'll learn to roll off the throttle. He said, because it's the brakes that get you into trouble. He said, you get in there and you get in there that quick." You tend to overbreak them, and that's when they, the weight transfer happens. And so, yeah, I, I was a left foot breaker anyway, so it suited me down on the ground, and um, that's how I learned. Just no breaks, no breaks. And if you said, "Look, if you come in and the brake discs are warm, I'm going home." So <laughs> that's how I like to do like thirty laps with no breaks. And he said, "Now have a look at the times," and the times were really good. So he said, you know, the last few tents now, uh, you start using the brakes, but only just a, a mild brush on them, you know, mm. keep keep rolling speed up. So, yeah, that's how I uh, I learn. I talk to, um, you know, some of the, the NASCAR drivers, um, Barry Graham particularly, and, and um, got a lot of insight. Bradley was, you know, very good there then. Um, yeah, they're all willing to... Because if you had a crash, you took out four or five others. So no one wanted to crash. Yeah, it's in their best interest for you to not crash because they're half yeah. a chance to get in it themselves. So yeah, yeah. And, and it wasn't it wasn't about ability. It was more about the car. If you got the right setup on the day, doesn't matter who you were, you were fast. You know, if if you didn't have if the car scared you, you 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 know you didn't have the balls to to go fast. You just couldn't. Yeah, you know, anyone that. Like I think even Brock, I was there when Brock had a, had a couple of goes, and and uh, you know Charlie O'Brien, we all we all came from touring cars, and it was frightening, it was scary, very very fast. <laughs> Whole another world. It was really oh. the that that era JF that helped you formally establish what was JFR for the, the the Oscar racing, which led into the NASCAR racing. That was the the real underpinnings of JFR as as a business, I guess. Could you run it then as a as a full time racing entity, or were you still doing other things to, to supplement it? Um, I still had the automotive shop, which um, uh, my wife Allison was running then, and and she was just look doing the day to day stuff and trying to keep the customers out of the race shop and because a lot of my clientele were, were racing enthusiasts and I was working on like Jim McEwen's car and 
you know, Beachy and and, and Niavani, you know, like a lot of these motor racing teams would all hang around and talk shit while I'd service their cars. So I decided to move the shop, rent it up through, then we ended up buying an old derelict factory and um, completely doing that up, you know, getting rid of the asbestos and painting floors. and So we all got stuck in as a, you know, um, a team to do that. And uh, that started JFR. I always had JFA, but JFR pretty much started there. We epoxied the floor, um, you know, rolled in the new car. Um, then I heard about this huge amount of money for the road course event at Indy, you know, the Gold Coast. Mm-hmm. 91, I think, when the Indy cars were coming out. And it was like 30 grand for 10 laps of racing. So... We bought an old ex Terry Labonte road course NASCAR Oldsmobile. Um, I think we paid like fifteen grand for it. No motor, rolling, leased an engine off Ian Thomas, um, stuck it in, prepped it, water brakes, went up there, and it was the biggest field they had. They had the Yank, some American guy road course specialist, they had Grice, O'Brien, Richards. You know, there was a full field, all chasing the doe in NASCAR. And um, JF put it on the front row, mate. Front row, <laughs> Joe. Couldn't believe it. I thought, this this is me, you know. This is, this is my, you know, I'm finally driving with guys that I used to race in class race. They wouldn't give you the time of day. All of a sudden... They're all like, they're all looking at my car and oh yeah well done mate yeah, fantastic and all trying to see how the hell I did it and it was just that was my entry to JFR you know we, we were on the map you know didn't really care about Oscar we were running that as well that was super competitive but um, that front row at uh, at Indian in NASCAR in a you know a cheap type car. Had Ian Wally Walburn as my crew chief, you know, fettling it and a bunch of other guys. But um, it started there, and that's when the link with Cummins, you know, um, Fisher Paykel, Better Electrical, all that sort of started there because in those days you had corporate credit cards. So before fringe benefits tax and all that shit, you know, people, you know, you'd go out for dinner and it was a race to throw your card down to pay the bill, you know. And that that went through to motorsport. Oh, oh you know, can we can we buy you more tyres, you know, more cigarettes? You know, what, what do you need? What do you need? You know, it, was like, it was amazing. Absolutely amazing. And the link with Cummins appeared out of that. So they uh, promised to... Um, you know, pay for a couple of cars. Um, I met Robbie Gordon, and he was sponsored by them at the time, and had a good uh, good chat with him and how Cummins worked and the history of it, and how you had to, you know, meet them and they get to know you, and then you become part of the Cummins family, which I I went to went over there, and the the CEO flew in on a Sunday, and I had to go and buy a suit and <laughs> sit down and do the deal, and Walked out of there with enough money to get two of the latest Chevrolet Monte Carlos built in Charlotte. Yeah, that was that was the start. Um, we just 
sign Newlon, uh, oil company, on our NASCAR, and I had to relinquish that, which was unfortunate because they were a great family company that had supported me through Oscar and early NASCAR. And, um, you know, Cummins were really going to take over the whole deal, so mm. a lot of those other ones had to take a bit of a back step. We still ran the signage, Better Electrical, Fisher and Bicycle, and they were very happy for me to do it, so... You know, they were getting maximum exposure with the Oscars anyway, so yeah. what that was, worked out good. What was the standout result win highlight? I know in Oscar, Bradley Jones was obviously the, the bloke who it felt like he had a mortgage on the championship, but he didn't win all the races even though he was winning titles. You, you won your fair share. Marshall Brewers, Steve Richards popped up there for a while. It was a pretty competitive field. Was there a particular win from that Oscar NASCAR era that you – that you're most proud of or that springs to mind straight away? Well, first of all, I never, ever had a NASCAR win. I, I actually won a race and got it taken off me. That's right. Um, you a uh, Thunderdome race. No, at Calder Park and on the Road flat course. track. Oh. I flogged them all and um, Bradley got the shits and drove in and crashed into the back of me in pit lane and, you know, you usually want to fight with a helmet on and, and he – you know, Bob Jane, I, I, we had an American crew chief, which we fly out for each round. That was part of the Cummins deal. Um, Bob Ray Hilly, he was the one that won the, the first NASCAR race there in 88, the Alvaline car. He was... With Neil Bob. That was the dude. Yep, yep, that was the dude. So we had him. So we'd, you know, we'd fly him out, put him up at the old Melbourne, and he'd, he'd come to our shop day before with, you know, chalk and string and... A quick setup and it was all about he we were he really wouldn't do anything until we got to the track you know it was all about he said mate just you know you put the right tire pressure in it and the right toe and you qualify it up the front and wait for the last 10 laps and you know we'll win some races so it was a very easy going dude so yeah he he that's what we did but unfortunately what i didn't know was that bob jane hated him <laughs> Stayed out of blue <laughs> from the first win, something about prize money. And, and then Bob Ray, he, when I arrived with the new Monte Carlo, and I'm I'm super fast in in practice. I like I was two or three tenths faster than anybody. And in the shootout, um, you know, they're all patting me on the back for pole. And Max Dunsey, who had an issue in scrutineering, was the last to run. And out comes Max and blows my time away, which I thought was just impossible because, yeah, we were clearly faster than him all week, and you know there was accusations of cheating and all sorts of stuff. And so Bob wrote, um, yeah, Bob wrote Hilly wrote Bob Jane a letter, which was <laughs> pretty shitty apparently. And um, it, I think after that. Um, and, and a few crosswords. It didn't look like I was ever going to win a race at Calder Park. I got to the lead and I was black flagged. So I'd wait. I'd run half a lap behind the field waiting for a yellow as promised. It wouldn't come out. Um, you know, I'd get pulled in to potentially, you know, dropping fluids when there was none. It was just, in my mind, engineered. I was just not going to win a race in NASCAR there. Um, so 
winning in Oscar, um, Adelaide, different track, suited me fine. Short races, won three in a row there, had to push my way past Bradley. Um, Bradley just had the act together. Him and Kim were just, you know, brilliant at what they did. They knew how to win races uh, the last 10 laps. That was what it was all about. We were flashy and fast, but in the day, I'd wear all my shit out and I had nothing left with 10 to go and he'd win all the races. And I learned in the end that, you know, I had to just follow him around or play with him, get in his head, which we did. And I did that by going down to Larry Perkins and getting him to build me an engine. And uh, they were brilliant engines. And it just put me immediately on the pace with uh, Bradley and a couple of others that were quick. Um, Les Small was building some rocket ship engines and and uh, part from HHDT and yeah yeah so I, I was the only one with a Larry engine and it was up to the task and we started yeah winning some races against Brad and I had two opportunities to win a championship and me and Brad took each other out and I, and I don't say it in that order but both opportunities were taken away and, and that's probably my biggest regret that um, he wasn't unbeatable out there but he's the most serious dude about winning you know, Kim and him um, appearing that uh, you know do or die mm, yeah. I had to win I wasn't, I wasn't going to beat him in any mental game out there there you have it. That's part one of my chat with John Faulkner. Next week, part two, we talk some more about his Oscar and NASCAR days, and he opens up completely on his time in V8 supercars as both a driver, a team owner, a franchise owner, and all the controversies and all the headaches that went on along the way. Plus, he tackles your National Motor Racing Museum couch racer questions and also the V8 Sleuth Top 10 Shootout. Don't forget, Father's Day's coming up pretty soon, a couple of months' time. Jump on our website, bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au. We've got some great specials, some great new books just released as well. Our new Adelaide 500 book is out. You can grab yourself a copy now from the website. Make sure you don't miss out. It's limited to just 1,200 copies. Of course, sign up to our newsletter at our v8sleuth.com.au website because you'll know about all the news that's going up on the website, all the latest offers in our store and everything in between. You can follow us on socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You know the drill by now. If you don't, get on board and you'll know the drill quickly. Uh, And as well, we love the feedback from the podcast. So keep your suggestions for upcoming guests flowing in, for questions, uh, for general feedback. We love it. Make sure you subscribe to the pod too because then you'll get the notification that you'll know exactly when the next episode has dropped. You don't have to go looking for it. You don't have to wait for it. It will be thrust right to your phone, pushed right to your device, and you'll know exactly when it's there for you to listen to. Anyway, that's us done. The V8 Sleuth Podcast powered by Repco. I'll talk to you every Tuesday for Repco Supercars Weekly and next week for part two with John Faulkner. Every lap in under a minute. Every move made to matter. Every decision impacting the outcome of the race. Supercars in Perth. Every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint. May 17 to 19. Book now at Ticket Tech. Supercars. Unforgettable. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? 
Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out.